0: Take your Bibles with me this morning, please and turn to 1 Timothy 6. As is typical when we find ourselves in one of the epistles, it has been full of instruction. Instruction is important, imperative, even. But like with anything, when one keeps soaking and soap and soaking, um, it can get a little tiring. you uh, you are soaking in instruction and every week is instruction and there's a great deal to think about and there's a great deal to, to uh, uh, put into your life, to, to uh, implement into your life. And it can just seem as though every week is, is something that you need to work on. It can get a little wearying. Last week... We were walking through 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 16, and within this context we came to a couple of very unique verses in verses 15 and 16. I didn't spend long on them, and I didn't spend long on them because the essence of their meaning exists in support of the main point Paul was making in regard to ministers fleeing these things, right? Ministers fleeing those, those lusts of the flesh, the lusts of, the, the, of uh, the eyes and the pride of life. And the basis, the root, one of the the essence, the elements of essence of fleeing these things, O man of God, is that you have this great God, the only potentate, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in light, which no man can approach unto. And as I was preaching last week, uh, there arose within my heart a desire to maybe pause for a moment, and to think about those two verses a little bit more closely. And then I was talking uh, to someone this week and they were asking a few questions about these verses and it confirmed in my mind that we need to slow down for a moment and explore these verses a bit deeper. And we'll wrap up the epistle next week and continue along this context. And the question I want to ask this morning is who is this God that we serve? We'll take a moment to step out from the instruction that we've been getting to dig to that deeper foundation, that deeper level of motivation. Why is it that all of these things should matter to us? Why is it that we elevate God's Word and we elevate these principles so high? Why is it that we strive for them and we reach for them and we, we, uh, we pray for them and, and, and we long for them? Who is this God that is so worthy of all of these things that we, that we seek unto? Why does who God is matter to who we are, or matter to who we ought to be? And so we'll take a bit of an instructional break today. There will still be an exhortation at the end, as is common. But we're just going to consider together the nature of God. And we'll begin here in 1 Timothy 6, verses 15 and 16, and then venture to some other passages and walk through the topic at hand. So we consider again these final verses from our passage last week. Verses 15 and 16. The Bible says in verse 15, speaking of uh, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The blessed and only potentate, Paul writes. And he describes this by adding these phrases, King of kings and Lord of lords. The word here translated potentate, potentate, Greek word which speaks of a ruler, but specifically one who is of great power, one who is of great authority only used three times in the New Testament, once translated mighty, once translated great authority, and then of course here translated potentate. And and here we find one of those instances within our King James Bible where they're using an English word to translate a Greek word and we might go into our our concordance and we might look at the Greek word and understand what the Greek word means, Uh, but then it's one of those words where we might actually want to go into an English dictionary and understand the word that the King James translators themselves chose to use to reflect the Greek that underlies it and of course I'd encourage you if you ever are looking toward the, an English dictionary to understand an English word that is in your King James Bible that you would not go to a modern English dictionary because the words in our King James Bible were last out updated in 1769 and that was a very long time ago. The English language like all languages has changed quite a bit in the last 250 years. And to that end, uh, typically speaking, the dictionary that we believe is best as a reflection of the King James Bible itself and what the words meant in their context in the King James Bible would be the Webster's 1828 Bible. This dictionary accurately represents what the King James translators, or at least the 1769 um, update to the King James Bible, would have meant at the time that they were chosen to represent the Greek words which undergirds them. And this word potentate is defined as a person who possesses great power and great authority. And and it is a wonderful word to describe our God, magnified naturally by the following expressions, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is a somewhat rare expression in our Bibles, used only of two persons. God, of course, being foremost, used of him four times, and then twice being used of the king Nebuchadnezzar, that king of Babylon. That unique usage for Nebuchadnezzar is found in two places in the Bible. It's found in Ezekiel chapter 26, verse 7, and it's found in Daniel 2, verse 37. In Ezekiel, God promises the destruction of Tyre by Nebuchadnezzar, and he calls Nebuchadnezzar not the king of kings, but he says, Nebuchadnezzar, a king of kings, showing just how powerful and great Nebuchadnezzar must have been that God in, pro- in prophetic terms was willing to call Nebuchadnezzar a king of kings. The same is true of that Daniel 2.37 passage where Nebuchadnezzar is not called the king of kings, but he is called by Daniel a king of kings. The only one in the Bible called the king of kings. Of kings is our God. And it is a description of God's exclusive authority even over all of the kings of the earth. That there are kings all over this earth, there are leaders all over this earth, there are men of wealth, there are men of uh, notoriety, there are men of honor, there are men of influence, there are men of power, but God is the king of kings. God is the Lord of Lords. A reminder that for every earthly king that we might see, every earthly leader, for all of the power that they might have on this earth, their power is is under authority itself. Their authority rests under God's authority. Their lordship rests under God's authority. Lordship. They answer to the authority of the king who is God. Though there be any number of lords upon the earth exercising any number of degrees of authority, every earthly power is subject to the authority of the God who has made them. And this is a wonderful, wonderful realization, isn't it? When we're called in Romans to submit ourselves to every authority in Romans 13, when we're called to submit ourselves to our masters, as we considered earlier in the book of 1 Timothy, the sound doctrine that servants would would, would, would obey their own masters in the Lord, when we think of the echelons of authority in this world and how often even those various layers of authority are abused among the powerful, are abused among those who have the authority, and yet we are reminded that they are under authority themselves and that to whatever degree they fail to align with that authority, they too will answer for those things. If not in this world, then certainly in the world to come. It is perhaps of no small significance that the first time this phrase is used to describe God, it comes out of the mouth of King Nebuchadnezzar himself. Remember, I had said that King Nebuchadnezzar is the other man who is called a king of kings in the Bible, and yet Nebuchadnezzar is the first man recorded in Scripture to speak of God as a Lord of kings and a God of gods. So we read in Daniel 2, verse 47, the king answered unto Daniel and said, of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets seeing thou couldst reveal this secret, speaking of the revelation of his dream. The only other times this phrase is used outside of 1 Timothy 6 here are in Revelation 17, verse 14, and Revelation 19, verse 6, as it describes Jesus Christ and him returning uh, to claim his kingdom and to claim his authority, and him being given that title and that designation, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, each acknowledging the dominion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ over the kingdoms of this world. Now, as we venture into verse 16, the description gets even more interesting, doesn't it, in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen, nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. God is first characterized in verse 16 with two attributes or by two attributes. And the first of those attributes is that of deathlessness, immortality. We might use the word eternality, that God is eternal. He's unchanging, he's immutable, and he is eternal. God is and always will be. He has no beginning, he has no ending. None stand against him, none outlast him, none oppose him, none depose him. Our God is immortal. And second, we see this phrase, very poetic phrase, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. This speaks to God's holiness, his set-apartness. And as we would look into the Old Testament scriptures, we might say his unapproachability, picture of God dwelling in light. No man can by right approach, seeing that he is beyond all things. And man is so very unworthy. No man can, by sheer physical capacity, by merit of his own, approach God. For the senses of a mortal man could not abide the holiness of the everlasting God. He is, in that sense, unapproachable. Described at the beginning of 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 17, when we were there, as the immortal, invisible, only wise God. Thus he whom no man hath seen nor can see. Now we'll talk about this later in the sermon, but this very holiness, this unapproachability of God as one who is wholly set apart unto himself is very, very important to the essence of Scripture, to the essence of the ark of redemption. It ought to inform our understanding of God, but it cannot be understood apart from the ministry of the finished work of Jesus Christ what we're going to do is we're going to kind of trace that arc in our time together. We're going to first begin with the establishment of that holiness and recognizing the Old Testament essence of that holiness, and then we'll trace that arc through the finished work of Jesus Christ to understand why it's so important to us today. And we begin our journey with the point in history where God introduces himself to us in the most clear and poignant way and we see this in God's interactions with the prophet Moses. We begin in Exodus chapter 3 as we walk through this journey understanding this God who only hath immortality, this God who dwells in the light which no man can approach unto, this God whom no man has seen nor can see. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 3 verses 1 through 6, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came uh, to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. He said, draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. We experience with Moses here his first interaction with the creator of all things. Moses sees the angel of the Lord appear as a flame of fire, out of the middle of a bush, and as Moses approached, the Bible says God stopped Moses in his approach to the burning bush, commanding him to take off his shoes from off of his feet, because the place whereupon he was standing was holy ground. So we see that the ground, by the very presence of God, was consecrated. And so as Moses would approach unto simply this apparition of the angel of the Lord, representing, as we would understand it, we're not going to go into the explanation of this today, but representing the divine second person of the Trinity, manifesting himself to Moses uh, through, through this, this uh, burning bush that was not consumed. The very uh, presence of God in that place consecrated the ground so that God demanded that Moses take off his shoes because he was standing on holy ground. Holy not in itself. It's not as if that ground was unique in any sort of a way except for the fact that he was in the presence of the immortal, invisible, only wise God. And the Bible says that at this Moses' Hid his fra- face, afraid to look upon God, recognizing the greatness and the holiness of God; therefore, refusing to look upon Him because of Moses's inherent unworthiness to do so. And this is the picture that we see all throughout the Old Testament, where in when, when the angel of the Lord appears, there is a falling upon one's face, a bearing of one's face in the dirt, lest one look upon God, unworthy even to gaze upon the greatness of God. And yet, this was only a manifestation, a representation of God, and it would begin a relationship. We might say even a friendship between Moses and God. And this relationship is going to become more and greater and deeper and it's going to climax with Moses drawing really as nigh to the very presence of God as any man perhaps ever has aside from Jesus Christ himself as this relationship increases drawing nearer and nearer to God in the years to come. That's what we're going to trace. We see Moses introduced to God and the essence of the holiness in this point of God's presence in this point, Moses, take off your shoes, for the ground upon which you're standing is holy ground. We skip ahead then. And we skip ahead to the day when God had redeemed Israel out of Egypt. And they were standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. And God is prepared to give to the people His covenant. And in Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 7, the Bible says this, And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord hath spoken we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee, and believe thee forever." And Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and be ready against the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai, and thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves, that ye go not up into the mount, or touch the border of it. For whosoever toucheth the mount shall be surely put to death. There shall not in hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up to the mount. So we are again enlightened to God's majesty as he instructs Moses in regard to the disposition of the people as they hear God's instructions. They were to purify themselves. They were to, in the first and the second day of a three-day process of purification, wash their clothes sanctify themselves. Be ready unto the third day because on the third day the Lord will come down in a cloud and in fire and He will come and when He speaks as the sound of a trumpet, they will come near to the mount. But God said, set a boundary around the mountain lest anybody come and touch the mountain because whether man or beast touch the mountain, if he touches it, he must die. This is a reflection of the nature of God's set-apartness, of His holiness, of the 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 uh, nature of His unapproachability, that if a man sought to approach directly unto God, he would be killed because man is sinful, because man is separated, because man is so much lower than God. And we read of this presence in verses 16 through 18 of Exodus 19. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mount. And Mount Sinai was altogether in a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And the smoke thereof ascended is as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. Notice here the description of the majesty of God. He descends in smoke and in fire, and there's a sound like the sound of a great trumpet, and so it's loud. And there's thunders, and there's lightnings, and there's clouds, and there's fire, and the whole mountain is shaking at the presence of, of the holiness and the majesty of God, dwelling in the light in which he dwelled, which no man can approach unto, veiled by the clouds and the smoke, the fire that burned upon the mountain, the thunders and the lightnings, the voice, the sound of a great trumpet, the whole mountain shaking, the people are terrified at the veiled presence of the holiness of God. So Moses, approaches unto the burning bush, and he takes off his shoes because the ground upon which he stood was holy ground, because God was there, veiled in an apparition of the, the burning bush. God draws closer unto the people in Exodus 19, descends upon the mount in the cloud and in the fire and in the lightning and the, and the mountain shaking and the sound of a trumpet, and they are thus upon holy ground, unable to come to the, the mount, unable to touch the mount lest they die because of the unapproachability of the holiness of God. But the pinnacle of the descriptions of God's glory, of God's majesty, of God's holiness, of God's inaccessibility is found in Exodus 33. That he is the God who only hath immortality, dwelling in light which no man can approach unto The people have been stiff-necked. Moses beseeches God that he would be with his people, though they are stiff-necked. Moses tells God, if you go not with us, don't even carry us into the promised land. Carry us not hence. We must have your presence, God. Don't take your presence away from the people. Beseeching God because of the, the hardness of the hearts, because of the rebellion of the people, not to withdraw his presence from his people. And God tells Moses that at Moses' request, he will do this thing. He will stay with the people. He will allow his presence to be among the people. And it's at this time that Moses then makes a second request of God. First, that he would remain among his people. Second, we read beginning in verse 18 of Exodus 33. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. God, I want to see your unveiled glory. I want to see your holiness. He hid his face at the mount or at the burning bush. He took off his shoes because he dare not look upon the apparition, that that representation of God in the burning bush. The mountain quakes, but the glory of God is veiled with clouds and with lightning and with thunders. In Exodus 19 now Moses says God show me thy glory let me see it let me see your glory God uh, verse 19 and he said I will make all my goodness pass before thee and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy and he said thou canst not see my face for there shall no man see me and live Moses I am too unapproachable I am too inaccessible for you to see my face my the, the fullness of me is the idea there. Obviously God is a spirit. They that worship him, worship him in spirit and in truth. There there is no face uh, per se, but what he's saying there is you cannot see the fullness. Verse twenty one. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and I shall come, and it shall come to pass while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cliff of the rock and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by, and I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. Moses had seen God manifest, but he wanted to see the unveiled glory of God. God refused, but God told Moses he would place Moses into a cleft of the rock, a small space, an opening in the mountain, and he says that as I pass by you, I will shield you from my glory in, in its fullness. But then what you will be able to see is the tail end or the afterglow of my glory. He uses the um, the picture of a man here. You can't see my face. I will hide you with my hand. You will see my back. But that's just in order for Moses to understand, in order for us to understand the idea is you cannot see the fullness of my glory, but you will be able to, ra- to see the afterglow of the light in which I dwell. So we read in Exodus 34 verses 5 through 7 and the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord, and the Lord passed by before him. So he's passing by, right? And he's shielding. Moses is in the cleft of the rock so that he's got one side that that's covered from the the light in which God dwells, and then he's shielded from that glory as God passes by, and and then he sees the afterglow as God passes by him, and the Lord Uh, passed by before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children until the third and the fourth generation. God's glory cannot be separated from God's attributes. So as God passes by, there is the light in which he dwells, there is the physical manifestation of the glory, there is that greatness to the senses, but then there is the glory that is manifest in his attributes that Moses could hear as God passed by and declared his attributes and God says that is my glory so God passes by Moses and it is perhaps the closest any mortal man has ever come to God this side of eternity save Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration to hear God declare himself from his own mouth to be in the presence of the afterglow of God's majesty the Bible tells us that Moses immediately bowed his head and worshipped he could do none else in the presence of Almighty God, imploring God to be with his people, Israel. And we read of the results of this encounter with God toward the end of Exodus 34. And the Bible says this in verse 29. And it came to pass when Moses came down from the mount, uh, from Mount Sinai, excuse me, with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand. When he came down from the mount, that Moses wist not that, his, that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone. And they were afraid to come nigh to him, skipping to verse 33. Until Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. And he came out and spake unto the children of Israel all which he was commanded. And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. And Moses put the veil upon his face again until he went in to speak with him. When Moses descended from the mount, having asked God, Show me thy glory. And Moses, not actually seeing the light in which God dwelled, but only seeing the afterglow, the back parts of the light in which God dwells, of the glory of God's majesty, of the unapproachability of God's holiness. His face was literally glowing from the light of God's presence. So much so that the people were afraid to come near to him. They were unwilling to get near to him because of the glowing of his face, the radiation of the afterglow of the holiness of God. Perhaps fearing that even the light of God manifest in the afterglow of Moses's face would be dangerous unto them. Perhaps that he himself had uh, absorbed a certain amount of God's glory to the extent that just as they could not approach unto the mount lest they die, if they approached unto Moses, perhaps they might die. So much so was this glow that Moses was compelled to veil his face when he interacted with the people. Such is this light that is described in 1 Timothy chapter 6, this light that God dwells in, which no man can approach unto. Such is the majesty of God's presence. Such is the beauty of His holiness. So that we read in Psalm 104, verses 1 through 5, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O my God, Thou art very great, Thou art clothed with honor and majesty, who coverest Thyself with light as with a garment, who stretchest out the heavens like a curtain, who layeth the beams of His chambers in the waters, who maketh the clouds His chariot, who walketh upon the wings of the wind, who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers a flaming fire, who laid the foundation of the earth that it should not be removed forever. Skipping to verse twenty four. O Lord, how manifold are thy works, and wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. So is this great and wide sea, wherein are all thing wherein are things creeping innumerable, both small and great beasts. There go the ships there is that Leviathan whom thou hast made to play therein. These wait all upon thee, that thou mayest give them their meat in due season. The earth and the sea, all that is therein, wait upon the Lord, the Bible tells us. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the only potentate. He is the one who is merciful and gracious. He is the one who is long-suffering and slow to anger, abundant in goodness and in truth. He is the one who is clothed in honor and in majesty. He is the one who covereth himself with light as a garment. We could go on, but we transition to why this is so important to us. This God, who is the most holy God, in whose presence Moses took off his shoes, for he was on holy ground, in whose presence the people could not come unto the mountain nor touch it lest they die, in whose presence when God enabled Moses to see the afterglow of the light in which he dwelled, Moses' face radiated with the glory of God and and, and the light from his holiness. This most holy God is so strongly contrasted with man who is unworthy to his very core. And if this is so, if no man can dwell in the light of God, if no man can approach unto the light of God, if I cannot look upon God and approach unto God, and God is so high and so holy and so entirely unapproachable, then I, vile and wretched as I am, have absolutely no hope of dwelling in God's presence for eternity, do I? I have no hope of incurring the favor of the Most High God, do I? God is, of all things, unapproachable. Just as Israel needed a mediator, whereby when God spoke on that day and the mountain was burning in fire, the people said, Moses, you talk to God. Don't don't let him talk in our presence again. Just as the nation of Israel needed a mediator, so too do I. If I am going to have any access to God, I need a mediator. And thus Moses becomes a picture a picture of Jesus Christ himself. We read of him in John 1. I read the first 14 verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. This light shines into the darkness, the darkness does not receive it. There was a man sent from God, verse 6, whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him. Speaking of the word of God, the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them which believe on his name, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word was made flesh. Take note of this. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus Christ is described here as the Word of God. We know we are speaking of Jesus Christ because this Word of God was made flesh and dwelt among us. This Word of God... Uh, was uh, what was among God 's people. He bore the light. John was witness of that light. We know from the scriptures that John pointed to Jesus and said, "Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world." We know that John 1:1 1, 1 through14 is speaking of Jesus Christ. He is the creator, that is in the beginning with God, co-equal with the Father, the divine second person of the Trinity, coming to shine the light of God into the darkness of this world, coming to translate the glory of the Father into that which man can receive. God's glory, though veiled in mortal flesh, was fully manifest in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The fullness of grace and truth manifest to men. So that verse 18 tells us this no man hath seen God at any time that corresponds with what we've learned today but notice this the only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father he hath declared him no man has seen the father Moses had he seen the father would have died God said I can't show you my face lest you die had the people of Israel seen the father they would have died, but the only begotten Son, He who is in the bosom of the Father, He who is the express image of the Father, as we'll see in a moment, He has declared the Father. He has revealed the Father. So that Jesus would tell Thomas in John 14, verses 9 through 11, Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you? Excuse me, Philip. And yet, and yet, thou hast, hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then? Show us the Father. Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? And the words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. He doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Certainly, God, clothed in light, unto which no man can approach unto, the glory of the Father himself, the holiness of God, manifest of the the revealed unapproachability of God. And yet, Jesus Christ, God made flesh, dwelling in this mortal body, in this temple made of clay, not in a light into which no man can approach, but rather among men full of grace and truth, God in flesh, but more, all the more importantly, not just God in flesh, not just the manifestation of the Father, but Emmanuel. God with us. God with us. God becoming accessible to man. The unapproachable God is made approachable, though no less holy. The Most High God has come to us because we could not go to him. May I say that again? The unapproachable God has come to us because we cannot go to him. Jesus called the Son of God called in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of his person, the one who upholds all things by the word of his power, but he who made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and made in the likeness of men, and who by himself purged our sins, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is where this comes and hits home. so that we might be clothed in Christ's righteousness, cleansed from our sin, and here it is, made worthy in Christ to approach unto the God who only hath immortality. Made worthy in Christ to step through the veil into the Holy of Holies. Made worthy in Christ to bask in the light unto which no man can approach, in the light in which God dwelleth. And in this we find the significance of Jesus' Incarnation. Why what Jesus did on the cross was so important. In Christ we have the Mediator, like Moses, who stands between us and the Father, the holiness of God, dwelling in a light unto which no man can approach, and man dwelling in the pit of our own darkness, and Jesus Christ, God in flesh, God with us, who stands in God's presence, who shines with God's glory, who speaks on uh, on, on our behalf to the Father, and who speaks to us on behalf of the Father, thus giving me boldness to come into the throne of grace. And if all of this is true, if in Christ the unapproachable has been made approachable, if in Christ the holiness of God has been made accessible to man, then outside of Christ there is no way. It is Christ alone. So that Jesus would continue to say in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me, This is the gospel. You are a sinner. God is holy. God dwelleth in the light into which no man can approach. You do not. And you have no means by which to approach him in yourself. Your good works, not enough. Can't approach him. Wash yourself unto the third day. Sanctify yourself unto the third day, God said to Moses. Israel sanctified themselves, they washed themselves, they purified themselves in every ceremonial way, but God still said, you touch the mountain, you die. Moses, the man of God, the friend of God, asked God, show me thy glory. God says, I can't, or you die. And yet Jesus Christ comes to this earth, lives a perfect life, and tells Philip on that day, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And tell, tells Philip on that day, if you come through me, you can approach, you can approach unto the Father. So that when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he cries out, it is finished, and he gives up the ghost, the veil in the temple, separating the holy place from the Holy of Holies, is rent in two, thus signifying that the way into the Holy of All has now been made manifest that I can step into the presence of the one who only dwells in light unto which no man can approach through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Have you accepted that finished work today? Have you come to the point in your life where you've recognized that you can't earn your way to heaven? You can't work your way to heaven. You can't buy your way to heaven. You can't be good enough. You'll never be good enough. You might cleanse yourself. You might wash yourself. You might sanctify yourself. But if you touch that holy mount, you'll die. Have you ever come to the place where you've recognized that there is a Savior, a mediator between God and man, one who did for you what you cannot do for yourself, one who died on the cross, who paid the price? He hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin. Why? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him, so that as I accept Jesus as my Savior, as I place my full faith and and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, alone to be my righteousness. I am clothed in Christ's righteousness and thus made worthy in Christ to stand before a holy God. Of course, he didn't just die. The Bible says three days later, Jesus rose again from the dead. A dead Savior would do me no good. A dead Savior might be able to to say some really nice things, but if he is dead, he certainly can't give me eternal life. If he is dead, he certainly can't do the things that he promised to do for me after my death. But that he lives, so too can we. And if all this is true, if God is this holy God, and if Christ has done this thing as the only means by which to draw me near, so that Christ is the only way, this is why the Buddha can't get me to Christ, to God, This is why Muhammad can't get me to God. This is why my, uh, some some priest or, or, or human mediator can't get me to God. This is why no religious system can't get me to God. The reason why is because they aren't perfect. They haven't represented the Father. They aren't God in flesh, God with us. Only Christ, Christ alone. This is why Christ has done these things, that I might be brought near to the immortal, invisible, only wise God. If this is true, how should I respond? Back to 1 Timothy 6, verse 16. That final phrase, to whom be honor and power Everlasting. Unto God belongs all glory, that we regard God with the value that is due unto his name. Unto God belongs all power, this word often translated dominion, that God is worthy to be regarded with the value due to him. He is worthy to be regarded with the authority due to him. And within the scope of this, Peter describes our relationship with God thusly. In 2 Peter 3. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Remember, Paul was just speaking about the appearing of Jesus Christ in verse 14. It is the appearing of Jesus Christ. That is the day. That is the day when it will be revealed who is the only potentate, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in light into which no man can approach whom no man hath seen nor can see. That will be the day of revelation. That will be the day where all of this comes to a head, the day of Christ appearing. Peter speaks of that day, the day of the Lord, which will come as a thief in the night, wherein the works that are in this earth will be burned up. Verse 11, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. Here's the question. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Verse 12, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. If God is who he says he is, believer, and if you are one who has accepted Christ as your Savior, if you haven't, would you make today the day? If God is the immortal, invisible, only wise God. If God is holy, so that there's coming a day when His holiness will fill all the earth and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. And we, through Christ, are of those who, according to the promise of the gospel, look for new heavens and a new earth. If we live in light, if Paul says in verse 14 of 1 Timothy 6, keep His commandments without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, if we do what we do today in light of that day when the immortal, invisible, only wise God will be revealed, when the only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, will be revealed, what manner of men ought we to be? What manner of persons ought we to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Is God not worthy of honor and power everlasting? Is God not worthy of your priority? Of your sacrifice? Of your love? Of your fear? And it is this that Paul appeals to as he exhorts Timothy unto obedience. And it is this that I exhort you to this morning. If the God we serve is that God of Mount Sinai, funny thing about that, instance on Mount Sinai. God comes down and he declares before the people the Ten Commandments. The people say, Moses, never let God speak again in our presence. You speak to God, then then you speak to us, and we'll take your word for it that God said what you said he said. So then Moses goes into that cloud, into that fire, into that lightning, and into that thunder, and he spends 40 days up on that mount. What happens while, while, to the people while he's up there? Having just heard the voice of God like a trumpet, having literally while the fire of God is burning and the mountain is shaking, the people are down in the plains in the camp forging themselves a golden calf, saying, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee out of Egypt. Defying the very words of God while the holiness of God still burned on the mount. What manner of persons ought we to be in all holy conversation and godliness? The Word of God made flesh. If you've accepted Him today, if you have placed your full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ today, so that you are veiled in God's righteousness in Christ's righteousness so that you have access to that holy of holies so that you can approach into the God into which no man can approach through Christ in Him. If this is your standing, God forbid that while the holiness of God burns on the mount, we should be in the valley forging ourselves idols. God forbid that while the mountain shakes, with the holiness of God, we should be in the valley back in our worldly ways, seeking unto the traditions of the world out of which we have come. If we've been made nigh, if the unapproachable God, unto which we could not approach, has approached us instead, what manner of persons ought we to be in holiness and and godliness, holy conversation and godliness. If unto this God belongs honor and power, how ought we to respond? Is your life committed to this kind of holiness and godliness of which God is worthy? And thank God we need not do such things on our own. Thank God that we have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Thank God we have His indwelling Holy Spirit empowered by the Spirit of God to live in a manner that pleases Him if you've accepted Christ as your Savior. If only I will submit. This is the God that we serve. The question this morning is, how well are you serving that God? Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota.